Mark chapter 15. And in verse 43, we begin to read where it says, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, and took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulchre which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulchre, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. One of the most interesting ways of studying the events surrounding our Lord's death is to consider those who were present and were eyewitnesses at the cross. If you think about it, there were many people connected with the death of the Lord Jesus from the time of his trial right to the time when he was buried Some of those people were friends of Christ. And we read in the Gospels about the women who were there. Some of them standing by the cross. Others who came to the tomb. The two Marys and the mother of Jesus, Mary. Also the wife of Zebedee. She's referred to as the mother of Zebedee's children. Another called Salome. All present at the cross. We think also of Nicodemus and we think of John the Beloved who was standing by the cross to hear Jesus say to him, Son, behold thy mother. He was committing his own mother Mary into his care from that time on. Some at the cross were friends of Christ. Some were foes of Christ. Obviously, those who put him on the cross, the team of soldiers who crucified him, those others who were standing about mocking and condemning the Lord, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, those chief priests, they were all foes of Christ. Even the centurion prior to his conversion, the two thieves prior to the conversion of one of them were also to be found among the foes of Christ. Obviously then there's some who were family. Of Christ. His mother Mary stood by the cross. We learn this from John's Gospel. And then there were some who were people who became followers of Christ. And I include among those the soldiers who crucified him. Because Jesus prayed a prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That would include those who were nailing him to the tree. I believe those men were converted that day. Obviously, one of the thieves was converted. Because Jesus said to him, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He became a follower of Christ, even though he didn't have very long to follow on this earth. The centurion, who was overseeing the whole event, the Bible says of him, that when he saw that the Lord cried out and gave up the ghost. Mark 15 verse 39. He said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion, I believe, became a follower of Christ. So there were various people who were eyewitnesses at the cross. There's one in particular I want us to think about today. And although we don't have very much written in the scriptures Concerning him, in fact the place where he came from, which was about six miles from Jerusalem, is only mentioned here and in the other Gospels in reference to uh, his situation. All four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea. You'll see mentioned here in verse 43 of Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, and then it gives certain details about him. He was an honorable counselor. It also says that he waited for the kingdom of God. 
and it tells us that he went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew's account, he gives us some more details that Mark doesn't give. It says in the, in the 57th verse of Matthew 27, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea. So there's a detail you didn't have in Mark. It was a rich man named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And again, that's something that we have not read in Mark's Gospel. But it does tell us that he took the Lord's body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And that's another detail that Mark doesn't give. He does tell us about the sepulchre. He does tell us uh, that it was hewn out of the rock. But it doesn't tell us that he did it. Matthew tells us that. That he had hewn out this tomb in the rock. That it was a new tomb. And that he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre. If you then would compare what the Gospel of Luke has to say. In Luke chapter 23, the Bible tells us something more about Joseph of Arimathea. Luke 23 from verse 50, And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counsellor. It tells us in Mark that he was an honourable counsellor. And he was a good man and a just. Interesting that, isn't it? Some people think, well, there are no good men. But the the Lord tells us in his word that there are men who were good men. They were made good by the Lord. And this man was a good man and a just. And it says, the same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. That's another important detail that Luke gives us. He didn't agree with what was being done. Even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, it does say he was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulchre that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Again, this is a little bit of an aside, but it's interesting to notice things connected with Christ that were used by him for the first time. The Lord was laid in a manger. No baby had ever laid in that manger before. The Lord rode on a beast into Jerusalem. The colt, the foal of the ass. The first time anyone had ever ridden on that beast. And here he is laid in a sepulchre wherein never man before was laid. Isn't it interesting that whenever the red heifer was killed in the Old Testament and its ashes were to be sprinkled, they were to be sprinkled in a clean place. A clean place. That is a place that was not ceremonially defiled. If there had been a dead body in that sepulchre prior to Jesus being laid in there, it would not have been a clean place. But you see, God preserves even his types. The Lord oversees the types of Scripture. There are other things in connection with the death of Christ that I haven't got time to deal with today that show how God preserves his types. Remember where it says that they were going to break the legs of Christ? And when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. You read that in John's Gospel, by the way, uh, chapter 19. And we'll turn there for a moment. That was a fulfillment of God's own word in relation to the Lamb. A bone of him shall not be broken. See, the Lord is preserving his types. But in John chapter 19, we find something else about this man that we're looking at today. Joseph of Arimathea, verse 38 of John 19. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, there's a a detail that Mark has not given, a disciple of Jesus. But secretly, for fear of the Jews, there's another detail that we didn't learn before. 
But he didn't let on that he was a Christian. He hid that from people. He didn't tell people that he was a follower of Jesus because he was afraid to. But now it says he besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus and there came also Nicodemus which at the first came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. That would be very expensive. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. He was embalmed, in other words. And then it says, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre wherein was never man yet laid. And that's the grave, that's the sepulchre hewn out of the rock by Joseph that was supposed to be for his own use, but was given over for the use of Christ. And it says, There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Sometimes we read of people in Scripture And there's not a lot of detail given concerning them. But what is detailed concerning them is of tremendous interest. And we can learn an awful lot from these individuals. In fact, in life we'll discover that there are lessons that we can learn from the most unusual of people, from the most unusual of circumstances. And as you look at the life of Joseph of Arimathea, there are tremendous life lessons for us to learn as believers. Here's a man who at a critical time came forward. The Lord had him in reserve. A man that we never had heard of before in Scripture and never hear of afterwards. Who came from a place never mentioned before this and never mentioned after this. But yet he has something to say to us as we read the Scripture. Here's a man who steps forward at an opportune time at great personal risk to take care of the human remains of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his actions are so much a part of the story of the cross that all four of the evangelists record the story. Incidentally, Though the Lord Jesus was crucified and slain by what the Bible calls wicked hands. Uh, We read that statement in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was preaching. He said in verse 23 about Jesus of Nazareth, Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So wicked hands scourged the Lord. Wicked hands mocked Him by putting garments on Him, mocking Him as if He were a king. Purple robe and so on. And the crown of thorns. Wicked hands held Him and nailed Him to the cross. Wicked hands impaled Him to that cross. But you'll find as you read the Scripture that after that, not one wicked hand ever touched The Lord Jesus, not one, who took him down from the cross. The hands of loving believers, who embalmed him and wrapped his body in the linen for burial. Committed believers. Who came to the tomb to see him after he was risen? Believers some of whom were unbelieving believers, of course, but ultimately recognized the Christ of God who was risen from the dead. He told Mary, touch me not. I'm not yet ascended to my Father. But then when he comes to the upper room, he doesn't say to the disciples, touch me not. He says, handle me and see. A spirit, a ghost, hath not flesh and blood as you see me have, a flesh and bones as you see me have. Thomas didn't believe. He wouldn't hear tell of it. 
when the disciples told him that Jesus was risen from the dead. So Jesus appeared in the midst and was gracious to Thomas. And Thomas, who had said he wouldn't believe unless he could see, the Lord said, Thomas, reach forth your hand and touch. Put your finger in the nail prints. Put your hand on my side. You never find at any point after Jesus died on the cross that any wicked hand was ever allowed to touch him again. So here we have this man, Joseph of Arimathea. And we've been studying the crucifixion. Pilate had declared the Lord Jesus to be innocent three times, in fact. But then, bowing to the crowd, bending to the pressure, he washed his hands of the whole matter, or thought he did, and sentenced Jesus to be delivered over to them for death. And then they crucified Jesus at the third hour. And of course, crucifixion was about inflicting the maximum pain that would lead to death. Many times those who were crucified, history tells us, would hang on their crosses for days. It would allow carnivores to eat at their bodies. And ultimately, the body would simply begin to rot, and at that point, the corpse would be taken down and thrown into a dump. But in the case of the Lord Jesus, you'll notice a couple of things. Because it normally took the crucified so long to die, and this was the Passover season, the Jews made an appeal to Pontius Pilate to speed up the process. Make sure that they die. We don't want them hanging there on the cross over this holy season. How perverted is the religion of pagans. They're so scrupulous about trying to keep some minutia of God's law that they'll crucify the Lord of glory and not realize the hypocrisy of what they're doing. If they were so worried about God's law, they would have never crucified the Lord Jesus in the first place. But here they are telling Pilate, we want them off the cross. We don't want them hanging there over this holy season. And maybe this was an excuse to hasten the death of Christ, but it's certainly true that they didn't want anybody hanging on a cross during Passover. And the Bible makes that clear. So John chapter 19 tells us, there in verse 31, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that's for the Passover, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was, that, that Sabbath day was an high day. It was one of their ceremonial Sabbaths at the time of Passover, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So what would happen is the, the soldiers would come to someone who was dying on the cross. They would take their, their spear or some implement and crack it across their knees. They would break and the body would fall and they would immediately die. And it says in verse 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first, that's the first thief, and of the other which was crucified with him. They did that to both of them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Now why was he dead already? Because the Lord Jesus gave up the ghost. He laid down his life. They didn't decide when he was going to die. He decided when he was going to die. He was in control of the whole process. But then it says that one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. But this was done, verse 36 says, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Do you think those soldiers cared anything about the scriptures? Do you think those Romans had any notion about the scriptures? They didn't care. But God was in control of their actions. And it says another scripture saith they shall look on him whom they pierced. So the very piercing of his side with the spear was a fulfillment of Scripture. Now look at this. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, 
besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. So the Lord Jesus was dead. And instead of his body being taken and thrown into some dump. Pilate granted Joseph the corpse of Christ. Now, humanly speaking, if Joseph of Arimathea had not stepped forward as God had planned, the Romans would have disposed of the Lord's body. But you see, the Lord is in charge. The Lord is in control. And in this situation, in sovereignty, he made sure that the Lord Jesus was buried in that clean place. C.H. Spurgeon commented on Joseph of Arimathea and he said let us learn from this that God will always have his witnesses the truth of God will not fail for lack of friends the Lord will have a Joseph of Arimathea to come forward and serve him now when we think about Joseph there's a number of things that come to mind we could talk about his character What sort of a man was he? Well, Mark 15 and verse 43 tells us that Joseph was an honourable counsellor. That means he was respected or that he was prominent. But the word that's chosen here in the English by the translators is honourable. He was an honourable man. That's the kind of character. He was respected among the members of the council which we know as the Sanhedrin. Now the Bible tells us that this man was rich. And we'll speak of that in a moment or two. But if you go to Luke's Gospel, he tells us that he was a good man and that he was a just or righteous man. That's what the word just means. Righteous. So that tells us that he wasn't just a passive member of the Sanhedrin. But he was a distinguished person. He was a man of reputation among them. He was well thought of in those circles. And I know we're in the realms of conjecture here, which can always be dangerous, but could it be that his reputation would have been the thing that got him an audience with Pontius Pilate to make his request for the body of Jesus? I don't think a regular person could have done that. But here he is as a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. But the kind of character this man was teaches us that Joseph of Arimathea was not the kind of leader who just went along with things. Who just went with the flow. He wasn't that type of person. In fact, the Bible tells us that he didn't agree with what was happening. He did not. He did not agree. In Mark's Gospel, In the chapter 15, the Bible tells us of him that he was an honorable counselor which waited for the kingdom of God. But if you read one of the other Gospels here, the Word of God tells us, I believe it's in Luke's Gospel, yes it is, Luke chapter 23 and verse 50 and 51 Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. That means he was righteous. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. As someone pointed out, there was at least one no vote in the Sanhedrin. No, I don't agree with what's happening. Did not go along with it. Now we're told that he was a disciple. A a disciple means a follower or a learner. We're told that he was a good man and a just or righteous. And we're told that he waited for the kingdom of God. We put all these things together from the four Gospels. Men of character don't just go along with the crowd when they know that something is wrong. And that applies, men and women, in the field of politics. It applies in the church. It applies to every aspect of your Christian life. Joseph knew that what was happening 
was wrong. He was a man of integrity, honesty, with no personal agenda, except that he wanted to do what he believed before God was right. That's the type of man he was. He was a man who you could say what he was in public, that's what he was in private and vice versa. And other people recognized him, obviously, as good and righteous. He was well respected. But the thing about this man's character that really appeals to us is the fact that he gave to the Lord his best. Think about that. He was a rich man. He probably could have bought some grave somewhere, some plot that maybe wasn't too expensive, but nobody else was using it and could have had that for Jesus and said, well, no, that tomb that's cut out on the rock, that's for me when I die. You see, that was something that was counted, apparently, I've read, among the Jews as being a real thing of status. It'd be like someone today having a mausoleum built around their grave. You see that in some cemeteries where people spend a lot of money to be encased in, in this huge monument. And by the way, some people think because you know they'll put a lot of stuff around a grave and all that that'll keep unmentionable things from happening to the body, not realizing that your body corrupts from the inside. That's the way it is, friends. I know it's an unpleasant thought, perhaps. But Job said, those skin worms destroy this body. Yet in my flesh shall I see God. I'm going to have a new body. When my grandfather was dying of cancer, he told my mother one day, he didn't like to speak directly of what was going to happen to himself, so he always made it in the third person. He said, you know, when people die, I hit these shrouds. I hit these shrouds that they put on a casket. He said, you'd think to see them that you weren't going to get a new body. That was his way of saying to my mum, when I die, I don't want a shroud on my coffin. Because I'm going to get a new body when I'm with the Lord. And that's true. But think about this. Joseph had just paid for this tomb to be cut out in a rock. That was no inexpensive proposition. And so here is a man who could have put Jesus in a far less expensive grave and still would have been highly thought of. But no, his character would not allow to give Jesus second best. He had to give the Lord the very best at great personal cost even to himself. That's my grave that's cut out there ready for me. But no, it's going to be given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave the Lord his best. Give of your best to the Master, the hymn says. Give him first place in your life. His character. Think about his convictions. Now, I don't read anywhere in the Bible about the actual conversion of Joseph, the day when it happened or anything like that. But we do find in all four of the Gospels that there's reference made to the faith of this man. He waited for the kingdom of God. Now, it's recorded in different ways by the evangelists. Mark tells us, and so does Luke, that he was looking for, if you like, the kingdom of God. He was expecting the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that's a phrase that would parallel the teachings of both the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. They went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God. Now Matthew and John called Joseph a disciple. And then one of the evangelists tells us that it was secretly for fear of the Jews. But nonetheless he was a disciple. That was his conviction. He was a follower of Christ. That tells me he had trusted in the Lord. He had become one who followed after Christ. Followed his life. Followed his teachings. Are you a follower of Christ today? Are you converted? You could be watching this online today and you're enjoying the service up to a point, but you can't say that you've got Christian convictions because you've never been saved. You've never come to Christ. You don't know what it means to be converted. 
You've never asked the Lord to come into your life and to make you his. Joseph was a convert. He was a man who somehow, some way, had come to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. When you think of the word disciple, it reminds us of the word discipline. Someone who comes under, someone who is a follower or a learner. This man had convictions. Something else about this man that we note is his company. They always say you can tell a lot about a man by the company that he keeps. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And here's a man who chose his company very well, apparently. Because when you go to John chapter 19, it adds a detail here that you don't find elsewhere. And it is that when he went to get the body of Jesus, verse 39, and there came also Nicodemus. So he was accompanied by another individual. And the Word of God tells us about Nicodemus in John 19, verse 39, which at the first came to Jesus by night. So we know that it's the same Nicodemus that's talked about in John chapter 3. Remember where he came by night. Why did he come by night? Well, because he was a member of the Sanhedrin and he didn't want anybody seeing him. He didn't want to be seemed to be fraternizing with this Jesus of Nazareth, who was hated by the members of the Sanhedrin, who ultimately had him put to death. So he came under cover of darkness to seek out the Master. John chapter 3 tells us the story of how Jesus got right to the point with him and said, you must be born again. Forget all about the religious trappings. You want to talk about your religion. You want to talk about everything that's going on in the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, I know you're a religious man, but Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what you need. Came right to the point. The Lord didn't waste any time whatsoever in telling Nicodemus what he needed. Now, we find that neither of these two men, Nicodemus nor Joseph of Arimathea, had let anybody know previously that they were followers of Jesus. John chapter 3 does record the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. What a lot of people don't know is that he did defend the Lord Jesus before the council. So he was not afraid, at least in front of the Sanhedrin members, to speak up for Jesus. And you read about that in John chapter 7. They're talking about the Lord. They're having a conversation about the Lord. <coughs> and the Bible tells us there. John chapter 7 and verse... Let's see, verse 47. Then answered the disciples... Sorry, the Pharisees. Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? So there he is speaking up for the Lord. I know he doesn't quite come out at this point and say that he's a follower. Or he's a disciple. But I think the Lord's already dealing with him. And if he hasn't been converted by this stage. He's on the way. The Lord's dealing with him. He's willing to stand up for Christ. But the story of their conversion. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Had never yet been made public. I'm always loath to believe Stories that are not found in the scripture, though sometimes they're interesting. One theologian suggested that during the trial of Christ and his crucifixion, that these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph, 
were hiding in the tomb where Jesus would ultimately be laid. I don't know if that's true or not. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. But here's the point. Both men made a conscious decision to follow Christ, but until this point, they had kept it to themselves. Just to recap, Nicodemus came by night. Joseph, it says of him that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Secretly. In other words, he wasn't quite prepared at that point to come out and say, I am a follower of Jesus. You read that, by the way, in John 19, verse 38. Secretly. For fear of the Jews. But now what do we find? These companions are openly confessing Christ. It was a good thing to choose your companions well. Nicodemus and Joseph forged a bond at the cross that was probably never broken the rest of their earthly days. His company. Let's think about his courage. Now, when we read in Mark chapter 15, it says something interesting in verse 43 about Joseph of Arimathea, an honourable counsellor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and, notice it, went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. It says in another place that he begged or he besought Pilate. But here the word that's used is he went in boldly. There's his courage. Actually the meaning of this boldly is that he went in without fear or he gathered up the courage or he took the courage to go to Pilate. See, this was a huge step for this man. He was risking everything, if you like, for Jesus. I was reading one commentator who said Joseph knew that the Lord's corpse was probably going to be tossed into a common criminal's grave as the ultimate emblem of humiliation, and that he could not bear. So he went boldly into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This was an immensely dangerous move. For Pilate was smarting from being manipulated by the Sanhedrin into killing Jesus, and could easily have implicated Joseph under the charge of treason. In addition, by making this request... Joseph was running the risk of being expelled from the Sanhedrin and coming under the scorn of the common populace for identifying himself with this false, failed Messiah. This was a huge act of courage on the part of Joseph. He's risking it all for Jesus. How long has it been since any of us have risked anything for Christ? let alone risking everything for Christ. He could have lost everything that he had by being identified with Jesus. I'm interested in the fact that I'm talking here about his courage, but obviously John's Gospel tells us there in chapter 19 that he was secretly a disciple. He didn't tell anybody about it. didn't want anybody to know that he was a believer. There are people like that, you know. It's not to say that they're not truly saved, but they don't have the courage to come out boldly and stand for Christ. But of course, ultimately, they'll have to. They'll have to. At some point, the test will be on, the heat will be on, they'll be placed in circumstances where they're cornered, they can't get out of it, they have to either speak for the Lord or go along with the crowd. Now, why was this man secretly a disciple? I'll suggest three things. Was it his personality? See, not everybody's like me. You'll be very thankful for that. I, I know I'll embarrass her here, but my wife is something of an introvert. 
her husband is not. And we see that reflected in other members of our family, personalities. There are some people who are just naturally bashful. Sometimes people are very shy on the inside and they're very bombastic on the outside. Make of that whatever you will. But that's the way a lot of people are. It's personality. I know sometimes we can use our personalities as an excuse. And we shouldn't do that. Maybe sometimes we need to work on our personality a bit. But let's be honest, there are people who are kind of shy, retiring. If there's a group of people in a room and there's a bunch of jollification and laughter, they're the ones sitting, laughing with the rest, nodding their head, but not saying a word. And then some other people are the first to speak. They're the life and soul of the party. It's personality. Could it be that Joseph of Arimathea was a very timid man by nature? Was he bashful? Was he shy and retiring? He wasn't quick to speak really about anything. Could be. But of course, in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that particular trait of personality had to be overcome. And sometimes the Lord will ask us to do things that we never dreamed that we would be able to do. In our first church, we had a couple of young people who thought that they could just come to the children's meeting and sit and watch and uh, just enjoy the meeting with the rest of us until we started telling them they could get involved. Oh no, I, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to do that. Well, before all was over, they were at their front teaching the lesson. Because it's amazing what you can do when the Lord gives you the ability. So the Lord can help you to overcome a shy and retiring personality. Just as he can help you to temper a rather extrovert personality at certain times. But then there's another thing here. Was he a disciple secretly because of position? I've hinted at this already. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. A very important position to be in politically in Israel. And he didn't want to be seen to be a disciple of the despised Jesus. Maybe that was it. Just didn't want people to know because it would cost him too much as a member of the Sanhedrin to be unpopular with the rest. And sometimes we can be like that in life where we're in a certain position. We don't want to jeopardize that position by coming out for Christ. There's another thought here. Why he was secretly a disciple. Maybe it was his personality. Maybe it was his position. Maybe it was his possessions. He was a rich man. And sometimes rich men have to put on a certain persona that goes along with the riches. They move in certain circles. I knew a guy once. He hardly had two hypnies, as we used to say, to rub together. But he'd gone into debt to get a big fancy car because he was in business and he thought he better not be driving up to this business meeting in a little geo or something like that. He better come in a big car to make people think that he was a, a successful businessman. That's what people often do. And they live beyond their means. But this man didn't live beyond his means. He was a rich man. And didn't Jesus say, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Joseph of Arimathea, like Abraham before him, is an exception to the rule. He had great riches, but he had great faith. But I tell you, possessions can be a real problem for people when it comes to living for Christ. There are people who move in high society. They move among rich and wealthy people, and they don't want to stand up for Christ. One preacher said in the old days when they used to ship wealth on galleons, big ships, many a ship sank under the weight of the gold that they were carrying on board. Spurgeon talked about those who were very good swimmers who had thrown off all the impediments that would stop them from swimming to shore from a sunken ship. But others bound gold around their waists, thinking they could swim to land and they sank to the bottom of the ocean. There's many a life that has been sunk because of possessions and riches. People whose spiritual lives sink under the weight of the gold that they're carrying. 
It's not wrong to have things, but it's wrong when things have you. That's where many are today in this world. Their God is mammon, materialism, money, things, possessions. To them, that's life. Yet Jesus said, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesseth. You've heard me perhaps refer before to Rockefeller, very rich man. He was once asked, what would it take in terms of wealth to make you happy, Mr. Rockefeller? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That was not Joseph, however. If he lost all his riches, it wouldn't have mattered to him because he was following after Christ. He was a man of prestige. Could have been banished by being identified with Jesus, but he asked for Christ's body. A victim of crucifixion, despite the damage that could have come to his reputation as a result. His actions took courage. And in the day in which we live, men and women, we need courage to stand for Christ. The thing about Joseph and and, and, and Nicodemus is that they were basically both secret disciples until now. But now they've come out boldly for the Lord. I read a story of a man who, without an apology, had worked at the same plant with the same people on the same schedule for 15 years and a visiting evangelist to his church asked him how it went to be a Christian in such a non-Christian environment and the man's response was I don't think they know I'm a Christian if that's true that's a disgrace how will you stand before God And people who worked day and daily beside you. Be able to say, I worked alongside that person for years and not one time did they ever tell me that they were followers of Christ. Not one time did they ever give me a gospel tract. Not one time did they ever invite me to church. I didn't even know that they were Christians. What will it take for some to to use a worldly phrase, come out of the closet? As believers though. Not afraid to talk about their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their absolute faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to think about the final point here, which is Joseph's commitment. Oh, he was committed to the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that he came out publicly on behalf of the Saviour. Whenever the Lord was going about doing good, I don't know that Joseph ever came out publicly on his side. But when he saw the Lord abused and battered and punished and nailed and bleeding and dead on the cross, Joseph was moved to public action that put his otherwise comfortable life at risk. See, I think Joseph had come to a crossroads in his life. What was he going to do? Was he going to continue to try to be a secret disciple, not tell anybody he was a follower of Christ? Or was he going to come out boldly on the Lord's behalf and say, Yes, I'm with Christ. Jesus said, If you're ashamed of me, my Father will be ashamed of you in that great day. Oh no, it's not easy to speak to people about the Lord. You don't need to tell me that. I find it way easier to preach behind a desk like this than to speak to someone in person, one-on-one, and tell them of their need of Christ. But it has to be done. And the Lord is able to give you the opportunities. Maybe sometime you'll be on a bus or a train or on an aeroplane, and God has put you beside somebody, and that person is there because the Lord wants you to speak to them. And in the course of your conversation, you can pray, Lord, help that person to say something to me that will open up the door for me to speak. And the Lord will do that. The Lord will provide you with the opportunity if you have a heart to take that opportunity. And who knows what 
will ever happen as a result of conversations that you have with people that you never see again in your life. Something else I want to mention before we finish here in regard to Joseph and his commitment to the Lord. Do you know that he was willing to become ceremonially defiled in the eyes of the Jews? Especially at the time of the Passover. How so? By taking down a dead body and carrying him to the tomb. You read the Old Testament law, that's how you become ceremonially defiled, by coming at a dead body, as the Bible talks about. But of course, in reality, there was no defilement in touching Jesus, for he saw no corruption. Oh, there's nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ that you could say would defile anyone. Quite the opposite. But think about Joseph's situation here. He was willing to become ceremonially defiled among his own people in order to serve Jesus. What will we do? Will we serve the Lord though it costs us? You know, talk is cheap. It's easy to talk. Say this and say that and say the other thing. But when it comes to action, it's a different matter. When it costs you to serve Christ and Not only was Joseph willing to become ceremonially defiled, he was willing to give of his substance as well. Think of the linen. The Bible says he bought it. He bought that fine linen. He bought the spices. And it had cost him a lot of money to have that sepulchre hewn out of the rock. That was not an inexpensive process. But he gave it over to Jesus. He wasn't going to be a secret disciple any longer. He was going to come out boldly for Christ. Though it might cost him his reputation and his possessions and everything else. Will we have such courage? Will we have such dedication? Will we be willing to sacrifice in such a way for Christ? Don't be a secret disciple. Don't even try to be a secret disciple. But say, as the old chorus says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none come with me, still I will follow. Though none come with me, still I will follow. Though none come with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back.